Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast Survivor Story Series, our guest is Angie Rivers, a police officer who is suing the Waterloo Regional Police Service for systemic gender-based discrimination and sexual harassment by male members, senior officers, and management of the service. We speak with Angie today about what it means to be a woman in a male-dominated sector and how her sex and femininity contributed to make her and other women targets for workplace violence and discrimination. We also explore the outcomes of her case and the role that gender played in shaping decisions in her lawsuit. Welcome, Angie. Thank you. So I thought that what we would do is start briefly with your history as uh, an officer in the Waterloo Regional Police Service. And when you started, when you left, just to get a sort of chronological background before we dive into the actual details of what your experience is. So I was hired in 2006 at the age of 28. There were, I think, 18 or 19 people in my, like my graduate class or my, my hiring class. So four of us were females. So I'm told that that was a lot of females for one class. And I was one of, one of the oldest people as well at 28 years old. I think there was only one or two people older than me. Everybody else was very young. I think one of them had literally just turned 20. And what were you doing prior to being a police officer? So before that, um, so I, I decided that I wanted to become a police officer when I was about 17 or 18 years old. And... Um, Right at the end of high school, I found myself pregnant with my first child, who's now 22. So that changed my course a little bit. So I ended up, instead of going to university and all that, just going to college. And I was so intimidated by all the student debt that I had racked up. Um, I just got a job working um, for Loblaws as one of their loss prevention officers, they used to call them. I don't know what they call them anymore. So that was sort of a stepping stone job that I thought would would pay the bills and give me some stability while I sort of stabilized myself as a single mother, which I did. Uh, I was able to buy buy us a little house, which which is at most most single mothers at the age of nineteen when they <laughs> that's kind of not the direction that they go to. It was a really really it was constant hard work, but I was able to buy us a little house and we were stable in my, in my little job in the private sector. And then I decided um, after six years there to just give it a shot and go for policing. When you were 17 and interested in becoming a police officer for the first time, had you any idea of what the culture would be in policing? And then when you reapplied later in your 20s as a 28-year-old, Were you aware at that point? My experience as an outsider of the culture, 
my mom was actually a 911 dispatcher for our police locally. So she would have get togethers with her friends. They were all very chummy. And I was able to get, I got a summer job working at the police station, entering in tickets into their old like MS DOS <laughs> old system. And I was able to get a co-op where I got to uh, go out on the road with officers. And what I thought I was getting into was, first of all, community service, which is probably the most dynamic, fun thing to get into with a little bit of, you know, the little bit of danger, a little bit of excitement, but mostly serving the community uh, and doing that in a sort of very tight knit culture, like what, what I would refer to as like a family type of culture. In other words, you bought into the, at least I don't know what it is in Canada, but in the US and New York, there's a phrase protect and serve, which is what the mantra is for police officers. Um, so you bought into that mantra that police were supposed to protect and serve and you're, and you know, in the old days, there was like the patrol man, the patrol officer actually does walk down literally the streets of the neighborhoods to make sure that people are safe and there's no crime. And so you bought into that, you know, how soon into your tenure as a police officer did you start to suspect otherwise that this perspective that you had maybe wasn't, you know, didn't align with reality? You know what? I still struggle with that, that is not something that I came to overnight, or I can't, I'm not sure I can pinpoint it to one particular incident that where I was like, oh, there we go, you know, things are, are different. I still, it's very much so that the, the, the recruiting, the training, uh, it's all very, very regimented. Um, looking back on it now, it's very, um, I hate to say the word, like, I feel, I feel like, like a conspiracy theorist when I say like, like cultish, like a cult, because you are indoctrinated with these beliefs that you are a police officer, you have been chosen, you have been, you know, designated, you are the best of the best this is your new family. You only trust each other. And it's kind of you against the world. And would you say that there's part of that indoctrination included this belief that police officers were above the law? I would say that for the longest time, definitely in the beginning when you're in training, there's no, there's no feeling of um, I, you're above the law and you can do whatever you want what they do sort of drill into your head is um, it's all about articulation. So you can justify 90% of what you do. If you get into a jam, you just have to articulate why you did what you did. And when, when officers get into trouble, it's because it's not because they were wrong and they made a bad choice. It was because they didn't articulate themselves properly. 
when you when you use the phrase articulate the word articulation, are you referring to in the moment when there's a problem that they're not properly identifying themselves as a police officer, or they didn't say the right words to manage the situation, or are you referring to after the incident once there there's been a problem how the incident has been spun? It's how the incident has been spun because、oh, okay. acting in the moment a lot of the time the Fight or flight instinct kicks in, and you make a lot of decisions very quickly without even realizing it. So the the way that you interpret somebody as being a threat, or you have to make sure that you can justify and articulate、um, why you used, for example, like a certain level of force to affect an arrest. So they might say, "Okay, this this person complained that you know you used pepper spray on them. So why did you use the pepper spray?" And so you would just go through a whole list of reasons why you would or you should have used pepper spray in that incident. And it's entirely it's like、um, an adventure in wordsmithing. You're based in Canada, and you know I just finished watching the、um, recently The Handmaid's Tale, and I don't know if you are familiar with it with the show, but they Canada is like the democratic sort of oasis, right? It's like the paradise.、Uh, it's the free, only free country, at least in North America, <laughs> that everybody wants to escape to. And you know, here in the U.S., with all of the, it's well known across. The globe that mass incarceration is a problem in the U.S. and that there's a problem with police brutality, etc., and racism in policing. But I am actually completely unfamiliar with the degree to which these problems also exist in Canada, because I think we have these idealized views of Canada, right? And and so I have to ask you. Let's just start in terms of the training. You were talking about training. Are you familiar with the differences and what's required in training between Canada and the U.S.? Even though obviously in the U.S. it's state by state, so there are different levels of education and eligibility. But you know what is what is required of of a police officer to even become a police officer in Canada? Um, so I'm not really familiar with what the differences are between Canada and the states, but I can tell you I can tell you that in Ontario, where I live,、um, to be a police officer, you have the minimum requirement is a high school education、um, and a valid driver's license. So in New York, you have to have an associate's degree, which is a two-year college degree. You don't even need a college degree in Ontario. Okay, and do you know how long the training is at all? Is it a you know two month training, three months, six months? Yeah. So in Ontario, it's three months of training at a provincial institution, and you live there during the week from Monday to Friday. People who are coming in from further di- di- distances, like way up north, Ontario, they would probably stay, and they would stay like over the weekend, and and that would be sort of their full time residence for. The three months, but for anybody within a commutable driving distance, they would go home on the Friday and return on Sunday night. Three months doesn't seem very long at all.、Uh, do you recall how much of that training, if at all, was devoted to sensitivity and diversity around issues of race and gender and sex? You know, 
it's 14 years ago for me. And I don't recall any sort of diversity focus whatsoever. I think there might've been like an afternoon devoted to homophobia or something like that. But I mean, it's so limited. I, I don't, I don't remember any formal education. And not only do I not remember any formal diversity education from that three month period, but uh, when, after I got hired, I'm sorry, after I returned to my police station or detachment, I don't remember ever doing any kind of diversity. I'm sorry. No, we did, no, we did do, yeah, we did do some homophobia diversity training, which I actually found to be offensive because I'm a Gen Xer and there isn't that like vitriol for, uh, in my opinion, and in, and in my, my circles, there, there isn't that um, genuine hate for other sexual preferences. So you're saying that the way that that particular unit was delivered, that there was like stereotypes? Yes. Uh, I it see. It was very stereotype heavy. It was very... So this is the word that, this is a word we used to use back in the 70s and it's inappropriate now. I'm like, at the time I was in my 30s and I'm like, I'm wasting, we're wasting a day <laughs> going through this like kindergarten kind of baby step stuff. But that was the only thing that I can recall. And they had, they had um, a sergeant who was um, like a, um, a gay officer like who was out do the training. So so tokenizing the one person that was uh, out to sort of deliver uh, and represent that community, that group. And, and what about in terms of domestic violence training? Do you remember any, do you, any amount of time devoted to understanding the dynamics of power and control and how to identify a perpetrator and a victim? Very limited. And that was also, and it was, it was, I would say more informal training than formal training because uh, as court decisions would be made, new case law would be introduced and there would be sort of informal training. So they would say things like, okay, so this case happened and this was the result. So from now on, whenever they're, they allege like a neck injury, you must call an ambulance and but there were, there were always reactive measures, never anything proactive, and largely informal. Okay, so coming back to the present, I'm not going to go into the details of your complaint because there's so much, so much in there. There's so much nuance. But overall, there were patterns that you described around, obviously, sexual harassment so unwanted sexual advances, um, whether it was verbal or, you know, behavioral gestures, etc. There were deliberate rumors that were spread. And so can you give us, you know, what the range of behaviors were that you observed and experienced during your time as an officer, and some examples of the most egregious ones? Yes, so I would say the most the, the very foundation or environment, even at its most sedate, is still very heavily um, sexualized. And I think that even policing on an average day, 
what's happening behind closed doors in those police services is something that the general public would find horrifying. I'll give you an example. And this is just normal, everyday stuff that I didn't even bat an eyelash at it. I didn't even consider it out of the ordinary or offensive. But um, several times after I had finished doing a strip search on a female, I'd be approached by a male officer and they would want me to describe what she looked like naked. When a sexual assault call comes in and it goes up on the board, there's sort of a general feeling in the air, a general assumption that it's a false report and that the majority of reports are false reports and that you're considered a good officer if you can poke holes in their allegations or poke holes in their story. Uh, that would make you like a good detective if you could get them to admit that they were lying or they made it up or embellished, embellished it or get them to accept some blame by admitting that they were drunk or on drugs. I'll never forget. This is something that happened when I was on. And this kind of struck me. And I don't know if it was because I was pregnant at the time, but I was on the, I was stuck on the front desk because that's what they did with pregnant officers at that time. And the front desk is sort of like a general, like a busy little hub for incoming calls. And um, it's like a, a meeting place where the public comes in to uh, meet with officers and, and whatnot. And this call came up uh, on the board about a female who was reporting that she was sexually assaulted while, while she was on her way home from a friend's house late at night. And so the detectives, we have a specialized unit that deals with just sexual assaults. And one of the detectives walked in to the front desk and said they were here to meet the complainant of the sexual assault call. And then, and then after reading the call said, here we go. Another girl making up another girl, Mr. Curfew. So she has to make up a rape story to, you know, make an excuse for missing curfew. And that came from a female detective that only did sexual assaults. And I think, and I'm not even, I can't remember, but I think that female is even a sergeant. So when you were experiencing and observing these kinds of reactions to, you know, need for help from the community, what was going through your mind? Like, did you observe it and then just take it in? And then over time, your consciousness started um, increasing and you started questioning the behavior? Or did you immediately have a sense like, this is wrong? Why is this the case? And But recognizing that in order to, to stay in that community, to be a part of it, to belong, you needed to be quiet. What was the range of thoughts and feelings that you had initially? I would say initially, early on in my career, and probably up until about six or seven years in, uh, I was fully indoctrinated into the culture. I believed. You also were thinking, oh, this person is probably lying. Yeah, because that's what you're, you're made to believe. And it's like a slow process, like a slow indoctrination. But when you have a female sergeant in the sex assault unit making rape culture comments, and I think, and you know what, I'm sure it happened many times before and after, uh, I think because I was pregnant and on the front desk, uh, it just struck me as, wow, that was, that was pretty harsh. 
So what, what shifted for you? Well, it's still shifting for me because I was, I was off work for a full year before I could even admit how ill I had become. Um, so it's being out of the culture and it's being removed from it that has given me much more clarity and much more ability to unpack and realize what I was experiencing was misogyny and rape culture. And not only was I experiencing it, I believed it. I was a part of it. There were all kinds of rumors about, I don't think, I don't think that there's a single female that works at Waterloo Regional Police that there hasn't been a sexual rumor about at some point, at some time. And I participated in the gossip and I believed it when I heard it. It's terrible. It's awful. And in terms of timing, was your year off as a result of the lawsuit that was filed? No. So what had happened was, in a nutshell, I was trying to get into the drug unit. So I was flipping informants and doing my own sort of side drug investigations while I was also a patrol officer working in a zone. So in between calls, I would um, make up little projects for myself. And I would liaise with other officers that were in those units to build a rapport and showcase my hard work. And one night, uh, one of someone who I considered to be a mentor, and I knew, I knew it was happening because he went from being professional to being flirty to being sleazy. And then um, one night he just flat out asked me for naked pictures of myself, told me that there were rumors that I was sleeping with another sergeant, but I, I should have been sleeping with him instead. And I should trust him. And it was, it was an awful night because not only did I find out I was the subject of sexual rumors, but also that he used that vulnerability to try and advance his own sexual wants. So instead of, you know, doing the proper thing and uh, reporting it and saying, okay, you know, these rumors are wrong. Um, he decided to try and capitalize on it for himself and thought, Oh, she's, I, he I hear she's an easy go. So I'm going to hit her up. And I was devastated, not only because of the rumors, but because all of the hard work that I thought I was putting into this. And he just thought of me as a piece of meat at the end of the day. So that was, I would say, probably the beginning of the end, I guess you could say. And then I, I cut off all, com all conversation with him because I was not interested in providing him with the naked pictures that he requested or performing any sexual favors to him. And I was disgusted and I, I just stopped talking to him. But he was your supervisor or was he a colleague? He was, he was a supervisor because he was above me in rank, um, but I didn't report directly to him. He would He's somebody who would have influence over who gets selected for certain courses and who gets to advance their career. And so when that happened, you said that was the beginning of the end. How long was it between then and when you decided to file a suit against the department? Uh, years. It was, it was years because I tried to 
overcome that adversity. And I found that the harder I fought against it, the harder they came down on me. So what were the ways that you resisted? Did you speak out publicly about it? Did you make formal complaints? Did you try to build allies with other women who were targets? Yes, I made a complaint uh, only after, and I knew that the sexual rumors were going around about me. And all of a sudden, I was the only female on my shift, but all of a sudden, um, half the shift just hated me and wouldn't talk to me. And the other half of the shift, you know, they had no problem with me, but they wouldn't talk to me because the other half hated me. So I was this social pariah and I just, I lost my backup. No, people weren't backing me up on calls, you know, potentially dangerous calls. And one day, one of my coworkers, a coworker who worked in the detective unit, um, she approached me and she said, you know, your zone partner, like, I'm a little worried about you because your zone partner said that you're a bitch and you deserve to get your ass kicked. And if you're calling for help, if you're getting your ass kicked, he's going to let it happen because you deserve it. So at that point, I was like, oh, okay, now I'm, I was, I was afraid before, but now that I had the proof by a third hand witness, I decided to make a report and much to my shock, nothing was done about it. They just gave him a verbal warning that don't do that again. And, uh, I disagreed with that pretty vocally and said, no, this is like, we've never even had a disagreement. Me and this zone partner, he has no reason to have such a hate for me that he wants to see me get physically hurt. Did he call you names, those words, sexist um, expletives to your face, or did he do it behind your back? It was never to my face. It was behind my back. Cause there's a, if they, if they're like making fun of you to your face in policing, that's a good thing because that means you're accepted. You're like one of the guys they're, they're giving you a hard time when they're not giving you a hard time. That's when, you know, they're doing it behind your back. I see. Well, you know, this brings, I've watched many crime series on TV over the years and when you were first talking about, you know, how it would be shocking if we knew what actually happened. I mean, I think it's shocking what's depicted in TV shows about policing. Like in The Wire, for example, I remember you have these officers who do nothing, right? The patrol officers who were in the police station, and they're like openly looking at pornography. And the the sergeant is even doing that being bothered when people come in and and talk to him about work. And so, I mean, that's one example. But on the other hand, I don't know if you see Law & Order SVU at all. You know what, to tell you the truth, um, (laughs) ever since becoming a police officer, uh, I don't watch police shows because I find them to be grossly inaccurate. For the most part. And the storylines bother me and the way women are portrayed really bother me because they're always like sexy, okay. like models. Yeah, right? no, I'm not, I'm not talking yeah. about like Jennifer Lopez was in her own police show, but which made her out to look sexy and her hair always amazing and down and, you know, whatever. But, but in Law & Order SVU, it's now in its 24th year or something. I've been a fan since the beginning. And one thing that makes it, I think, a fantasy 
from what you describe and from what all the other police shows depict is that pretty much everybody in SVU, you know, is not part of rape culture. I mean, they struggle with it, but they are always pro-victim and they believe the victim. And that alone seems to be not based in reality because if that was the case, then we wouldn't have rape culture in policing. Yeah, I think that the like rape culture begins in policing because those stereotypes are just repeated and reinforced. But to tell you the truth, recently I've started watching the, the TV show that I find most like my work experience. And you're going to laugh probably, but are you familiar with The Office? Yes. There's police there? No. No, oh. but just like, just that... Um, dynamic of having superiors who are 110% unqualified and, and out of their element, um, having <laughs> running um, an organization and everybody having to go. But, <laughs> but there, the, there's no harm, really. It's a paper product company. And with you, your right. job, there's a lot of people that will be harmed if there's incompetence. There's That's life and death. Yeah. When there's incompetence. So when you have, you know, I can't remember what the boss is. Is it Michael, the boss? Yeah, I don't remember either. Could you imagine like a Michael being like a staff sergeant of a platoon and coming in and being like, hey, guys, we're having our diversity talk today and. And just make just make a, a complete embarrassment of himself. Yeah, that's. Oh, I'll, I'll give you a real life example. I'll give you a real life solid example. My police service. Um, no, we'll never know. And I'm gonna say, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface all of this by saying it's alleged. We'll never know what happened because it was never formally investigated. And the perpetrator was allowed to retire, uh, packed up his desk in the middle of the night. But um, in, I would say probably around 2009, I would have to go back and check my records. I was a very new officer and I heard a rumor that a superintendent, which is very, very high ranking, very close to uh, the chief, the only, the only rank in between is deputy, sent out pictures of his penis um, over over phone and email to officers that were very young and many, many levels of seniority below. And the female officer that received one of these pictures wanted to make a complaint and approach the man management about making a complaint and what would happen. And they said, well, you know, probably nothing will happen. He'll probably get a warning because, you know, it's the first time he's done something like this. And so she was completely discouraged from making a formal complaint. And years later, so you have this alleged perpetrator of taking advantage of his position of power and sending out naked pictures and trying to solicit sex from junior officers. And he gets put in charge of the sex assault unit by the chief. So he's running the sex assault unit not only that, but in Canada a couple of years ago, a, a, a reporter by the name of Robin Doolittle with the Globe and Mail came out with a short 
study that she did on uh, rape culture and policing in Canada and found that on average, I think it's around 20, 20% of sexual assault reports get deemed as unfounded. And my police service, Waterloo Regional Police, was well above the national average. It was at like 28 or 29%. So it was well above the national average, which is already really dismal. And um, they formed a community um, task force to review sexual assault cases and find out why they're, why are they just so darn high when common sense will tell you it's rape culture. But again, the chief puts this superintendent on this committee task force to address the unfounded rate. So it's just sort of, it should be common sense and it's just blunder after blunder. But I mean, I can't imagine a worse scenario. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's another myth that we see in police shows, that internal affairs is actually this independent arm that actually enforces accountability. (laughs) And so I'm guessing, in your experience, internal affairs is basically another arm of the police force. So I will say, in my experience, and in my opinion, these internal in my at my police service, it's called inter, um, sorry, policing standards. They are not independent. They are officers from the same service who just sort of get dragged into this unit to investigate misconduct or allegations of misconduct. But in reality, what this unit is, is just a tool for the chief to exercise his, his political moves. Uh, it's, it's unbelievable what gets swept under the rug and what gets formal discipline. Do you want an example? Give you a good example. This is my personal example. This is a, this is a misconduct that I was the subject of. So my team, I was in plain clothes detectives. We made an arrest or my team made an arrest of a mother. She happened to have a five-year-old child with her basically on the front lawn of her house very traumatic for this little five-year-old. And because I was the only female on the team, of course, I get child care duties, um, which I, I didn't object to because I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust any of those guys with my five-year-old. So I had to stay with this five-year-old until family and children's services came to pick the child up because there was no next of kin. There was nobody that this child could be left in the care of. So I had the keys to this, to this child's house and I took this child into her own house so she could have the comforts of home, food, shelter, a washroom. It was up in Canada. It was first couple of weeks of March. So still very cold outside. She was not dressed for the weather. So as I saw it as an exigent circumstance where we really needed access to that little girl's residence for her care and her comfort. So not too long after that happened, I found myself to be investigated and formally charged with discreditable conduct because I didn't get permission from this child's mother to take her child into her house. The mother who was on drugs and in police custody. 
And this was a retaliatory act against you for your previous. I believe so. Because at this point I was, remember that Sergeant that I told you about that was that message being the middle of the night. Well, at this point he was my boss. So he was my direct supervisor and any little thing that he could try and pick apart and exploit and turn into misconduct, he did. So you've described an obvious culture of misconduct within the police force towards one another, towards the female officers. We had a separate interview with a woman who dated a police officer who was abusive towards her. And, and we, disc- you know, we talked about how the police ignored that as well officer involved domestic violence. And then a third element is police behavior towards the community members. I'm sure you're aware of this. I'm curious if you know what the laws are in Canada, but in the US, if you're in custody, if you're in police custody, um, not every state makes it illegal for a police officer to have sex with the people that they're holding. Did you know that? I I read a newspaper article. I think it was like the Boston Chronicle or something like that. And I thought, I thought that was satire. No, it's not. It's real. You're so, kidding. No. Me. And, and so I, I guess I'll tell you this because this is a very famous and unfortunately it's not widely known, but in 2016, there was a huge scandal in Oakland, California. Had you heard about that? I'll share the details in the show notes. I can't remember all the details, but there was a young underage girl who was, I believe, 16, so under 18. And she somehow became, I don't know if police officers in Oakland like targeted her or she became an informant at some point or she was, whatever the details, um, she became in police custody at some point. This is blowing my mind right now because I was sure it was satire because it was just too out there. I'm not sure how this happened, but the police officers first communicated with this underage girl uh, on Facebook, and it led to them coercing her to perform sex acts on them, you know, a form of commercial sexual exploitation. They It led them to force her to commit sex acts on the police officers without an exchange of money, I believe. Like, I don't think there's she gotten anything in return. I wasn't sure if she was a informant or not, but in either case, I don't believe she received any money or any benefit. And therefore it was, you know, a form of rape, right? And, or sexual coercion and assault. And so it led to multiple layers of cover up. Um, and then eventually, I remember one week in 2016, maybe it was 2017, Literally three Oakland chiefs of police resigned in one week. Did you remember that? This was this. They, each of them like resigned. They moved to different states. Yes. Because who, who runs from lies like that? Nobody works that hard to avoid a lie. Yeah, it's incredible. So this, first of all, the fact that we don't have laws every, in every state to prevent this to make this illegal is just crazy. I mean, that's kind of like the same as child marriage laws. The fact that all 50 states, you know, still, there's some states that allow girls to be married off at age 12 still is, is just Byzantine. Uh, Similarly, 
if you're in police custody, of course, anything that you do is going to be coerced <laughs> by definition. And why we have to argue that is absurd to me. Um, Does it seem like sexual predators are just running the world? <laughs> well, I mean, so that's what I, I want to ask you. In terms of the conversation that we're having now in the U.S. for the past six months, much more intensely around police reform, criminal justice reform, prison abolition, there's this hashtag defund the police where people in especially in communities of color are asking that the money that's being allocated originally for policing and especially racist policing and the militarization of police, that it be redirected towards helping communities economically develop and thrive, right? And so more money towards social services, towards the community having autonomy, towards the right first responder being involved, who's properly trained potentially to deal with mental health issues, to helping communities be lifted out of poverty so that they're not resorting to criminal behavior as a uh, form of survival. All of those things make sense, but but I wanted to get your take on it um, because I haven't seen so much of this movement in Canada or anywhere else, obviously, because you don't have as severe a racist criminal justice system as we do. I don't know. I think ours is just a little bit more subdued, a little bit more polite, but there's definitely, I feel like, Canada is on the verge of, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much it's going to take. I don't see it being far off for us to have our own riots here. So do you have racist policing the way we do here where, you know, people of color are, are treated with force and they're disproportionately arrested and sentenced and convicted of crimes at disproportionate sentencing even compared to their white counterparts? Is that happening? I don't have the statistics on hand right in front of me, but uh, I can tell you that statistically that is true. There is pressure for reform. There is pressure for defunding police up here right now. Race is also a hot button issue. And while we don't have, like, for example, like the killing of George Floyd example currently in the media or, or at hand. Um, there was one incident in Toronto a couple of years ago where a black man was beat so severely by an off-duty officer and his brother he was beat so severely that he actually lost his eye. And uh, that trial actually just wrapped up a few weeks ago. And uh, the officer and his brother were found guilty of assault. But what, ha- what, what, un- what this has uncovered is that the police service knew that their officer had, at the very least, used excessive force while he was off duty, caused very severe injuries, and didn't investigate it and just, you know, buried it. Like it never happened. And it was three months after it, ha- it had happened. We have um, an investigative body that's supposed to investigate any kind of 
serious, they call them serious injuries while uh, an officer is executing their duties. If, if someone is injured of a serious nature, so that would be something that requires hospitalization or um, like a broken bone. It requires this, by law, this this arm's length agency is supposed to come in and do a, an, an independent investigation. And they were never called in that particular case, even though this kid lost an eye. And oddly enough, uh, so that was the Toronto police in Ontario. And oddly enough, uh, it's my police service that has been called in to do the um, investigation as to whether or not there was any misconduct on the Toronto police by them not pursuing uh, the manner, the, the matter in a, in a transparent and, you know, way that would, would address his, his actions that night. Instead, it was just sort of buried. Like it didn't, like it never existed. So my police service is going to step in and investigate and we'll see what those results um, are when they come out. But since then, the police chief has, re has resigned two years before his contract was, uh, was due. So uh, he won't be around to take any of the heat, if there is any, to be had, because he's long gone now. And that just seems to be the overarching theme that they allow the boys that are in the boys' club to, uh, you know, pack up their desk in the middle of the night and avoid any kind of misconduct and they get to retire or they get packaged out and with a, with an unblemished record when that's not entirely accurate. And I can give you another example of something that happened at Waterloo. And I can't verify this because I don't know what, what is the difference between like workplace rumors and information that's known? I don't know what the difference is. So I'm going to say that this is also alleged and we'll never know, we'll never know because it wasn't investigated in a transparent manner, but we had a, a drug officer who apparently was having an inappropriate relationship with a confidential informant. And I don't know to what degree, just that it was, it was a female and it was inappropriate. And uh, the rumor was that he was allowed to resign instead of face, facing misconduct or even potentially criminal charges. And he was allowed to resign and he got packaged out. He got a year of pay and benefits and an unblemished record. And he went off to go find another, a new career with a glowing resume. You've given so many examples within police culture to describe this, in your own words, this basically this cult that indoctrinates sexism and misogyny, enables it, minimizes it, hides it, covers it up, and has no, you know, desire for accountability at all. And so if you had a magic wand, what would be some of the ways that you could change policing, assuming you want to keep it? Let's start there. Do you think there's a place in our society for us to have police officers and police in general to keep the community safe. And of course, I ask that as a survivor. We want abusers to be put in jail. 
And we want there to be accountability through enforcement of our laws and for domestic violence to be taken seriously. Uh, I've been giving that a lot of thought lately. And I don't know, the more I learn, the, the more I feel like this system is broken beyond repair. And it's, it's not, and I wouldn't even say that it's broken because I think it was created and cultivated and massaged by a certain demographic to benefit that certain demographic. And it works very well. And only now that technology has caught up, so people are caught red-handed in lies, only now that we have technology who's hold, that, that holds people accountable are we seeing what the reality is. I've had uh, a recent guest on our show, Jessica Taylor. She wrote a book called Why Women Are Blamed for Everything and does research on victim blaming in rape and sexual assault and domestic violence cases. And she created a lot of psychometric tests, attitudinal tests, that potentially, like if we wanted to, we could use it on the existing police force uh, or law enforcement in general to filter out the ones who are biased or whose biases, you know, are so harmful that prevents them from being able to be addressed. Or maybe let's say we replaced everybody <laughs> and we use these tests to bring on new people, new staff who actually are motivated to protect and serve. If we actually were to implement the vision of what policing is supposed to be about and we have a mechanism for filtering them, for assessing them, for eligibility and making sure along the way that there's ongoing assessments, for example, right? Making sure along the way that they're not being manipulated and into the manosphere, right? Or white supremacy circles, alt-right circles, that there is a way to keep them from straying, right? And keeping, keeping them authentic to their values, putting aside whether you think it's possible. Is that desirable? I think it, it's not only, it's desirable for sure, but not only is it desirable, I think that the push would be to, I'm just guessing, but knowing what I know about the culture is that they would want new hires to go through this psychometric testing. They already do that. The people who need the psychometric testing are all in senior management and have been working the job for 20 or 30 years and bring their 30-year-old biases with them. Those are the people that need that screening but you will never have, they would be probably the last ones to, to ask for it and admit that they need it. I mean, if we change policy so that everybody's required, I think we would, we'd make sure, I mean, that's the idea, right? That we'd want to make sure there's nobody who is protected under the current system and culture. And so it's, a, it's up to us to define what we want, to envision what we want as citizens of communities. Tell us about what the status of your case is, your civil suit. So the civil suit. So I was part of a proposed class action against my police service for systemic and institutionalized sexual harassment and gender discrimination. And um, that actually came to a close a year ago, uh, almost 
I think the anniversary is coming up. Uh, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada and we lost all the way up. <laughs> the Supreme Court of Canada and the courts in Canada remain uh, steadfast in their opinion that sexual harassment, gender discrimination in the workplace, if you're a unionized workplace, is a matter to be dealt with within the union or association. That's what we have in policing. We don't have unions because we don't have full the full rights that a union has. We are unable to strike and um, other details. But uh, so we have associations, and their their main purpose is for collective bargaining for the contract. And uh, I would say that up until very recently, like literally weeks ago all of my attempts to have my association deal with my issues through the labor relations regime have been just stonewalled and by way of not returning calls, not returning emails, texts, making promises to, oh yeah, yeah, we'll get together and we'll talk about this in detail, you know, and then like, it just never happens. So the courts have decided that it, it's a labor issue, not an issue for the courts. Okay. So we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. And our first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? What's at stake is the future, like physical, emotional, mental well-being for victims in the community. If we could eliminate gender-based violence sexual violence, how much resources would that free up? I mean, I, I, can you even imagine a society where it seems like a utopian, <laughs> but there's the cycle of repetition that is there, the effects of victimization and the shame and really prevents people from actualizing themselves. And what, what is the point of all this if we can't do that very minimum thing? What gives you hope? Uh, feisty women. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? I think we can stop the not all men rhetoric and let that equalize out a little bit more. Um, and I think that being honest or blunt and instead of politically correct, and to, I mean, maybe that's a Canadian thing, but tiptoeing around serious issues and not calling them what they actually are. People up here are offended by the word rape culture when I use that to describe policing. But that's exactly what it is. Police culture is rape culture. And I think we need to accept that as a, as a reality and stop being offended and start working on these solutions. Well, thank you so much, Angie. I wish you every success. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. 
you can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.